Father, as we come to hear your word, we do ask once more that you will open our eyes that we may see who you really are, that you will open our ears that we may hear and understand your word, and that you will open our hearts that we might receive these words as the words of eternal life. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 4. We are continuing once more in our look at the life of Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 4. And we shall read to verse 37. Page 371 in the church Bible. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his his creditor is coming to, to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, go round and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil in all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live On what is left. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well to do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp. For him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, What have you? You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. 
The child grew and one day went out to his father who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called to her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly in return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she went out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his, ser his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, as he stretched himself out upon him. The boy grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got onto the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and he opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, she said, He said, Take your son. She, fell, she came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we come to this next uh, section in 2 Kings, we find Elisha again in the thick of, of the action. Uh, and as, as God is intervening in the lives of these two women. These women could not be more different. One is a widow. Uh, who has absolutely nothing. She is at rock bottom in complete desperation. The other woman has no worldly needs and is a someone of great standing, literally in the text, a great woman. Someone of particular importance in her community, no doubt. Inwardly, although she longs for a child. 
Yet she becomes desperate as the child that she was granted dies very suddenly. One woman is desperate because of the inevitability of death and the other because she has experienced the stench of death firsthand. These stories are about two very desperate people. Yet they are stories of God's intervention and his providing for them. See, these stories paint us a picture of Yahweh, of the God of the covenant, Israel's God. They show us what he's like, how he cares for the nameless widow and the crying mother. They are stories of our God, the same God who came in the person of Jesus Christ and who lived amongst us. The one who felt our pains and suffered the agonies of death itself. He became poor without even a pillow to lay his head on. And yet he was rich. In these stories we see God's power over death and desperation. We see God intervene in these situations to bring something of his grace. So I think these, we see four things in the, this passage. First of all, we see a desperate woman and then a glorious provision. And then we see a broken woman and a miraculous sign. So in the first uh, seven verses of chapter four, we have the story of this widow, this desperate widow. Her husband, uh, having died, leave, has left her with a serious debt to pay off. And her two sons are going to be taken by the bailiffs as collateral in payment for this debt. In this situation, this woman was going to be in serious trouble. Widows in the ancient Middle East were amongst the most vulnerable uh, people in the society. And this poor widow, now that her husband was away, uh, was dependent on her two sons to provide for her livelihood. If they go, then she has absolutely nobody to help her. She has reached the end of her tether. And she cries out to Elisha. And when she asks him, when he asks her, what have you got in your house? All she can reply is, I have nothing at all except this little oil. She has exactly nothing no earthly goods, no way of paying her debts, no means of survival. Only this little oil, which is part of the nothing at all. It's completely insignificant. It has no possible use for her in her situation. Once the creditors arrive looking for payment, she won't be able to hold up this little jar of oil and say, will you take this for payment instead? She can fall no further down the packing order. Yet hear her cry as she pleads to Elijah, your, your servant, Elisha, my, my husband is dead and you know that he revered the Lord, she says. Do you hear what she's saying? All these years, she has faithfully supported her husband who has served Yahweh, the God of the covenant. And he has remained faithful to Yahweh. Even through these desperate times in this northern kingdom when Jezebel was putting the, the prophets of the Lord to death. When there was widespread apostasy from the true God. 
He was one of those people who swam against the tide of cultural apostasy in the northern kingdom. When all around were more interested in worshipping Baal, this woman and her husband were serving Yahweh. And here she is, with nothing, only little oil. Do you hear her cry? The cry of why? Why should this happen to me after my husband risked the wrath of Jezebel because he feared the Lord more than he feared her? You see, often we just expect to be exempt from suffering and hardship because we serve the Lord, don't we? We assume that because we're good Christians and we serve God, we shouldn't have any suffering. No, none of it should come our way. That it should be all sweet and rosy on to glory and nothing should get in the way of us. But that's not how it works, is it? Experience tells us that. Nor should we say that this is because the suffering comes because of this woman's lack of faith in, her, in, that, in the terrible situation that happened. This, this passage um, has no complaint with this woman's faith. In fact, quite the opposite. For in desperate need, the desperate needs she finds herself in, she turns to God and not away from God, as a lack of faith would suggest. This woman, desperate in her situation, and, her, and with, a, no, with a complete lack of resources to deal with her situation, she doesn't turn her fist to God in anger, but rather she turns her open hands, seeking his grace. Now, I'm sure every single one of us has been in a similar situation to this nameless widow. Maybe not to do with debts and money, but I'm sure we've all been, had times when we've been completely desperate. Wondering why on earth am I going through this? Maybe a health issue, family situation, keeps coming back. You find yourself in a situation where you just don't have the resources to deal with it. You only have that little oil and it's fast running out. You're on the verge of total despair. You don't know how you're going to get through. Most of us have been there at one point or another. If not, you most likely will be. But what to do? That's the question. What to do about it? Well, what did this widow do? She went to Elisha. She went to the Lord's anointed one, the prophet of the Lord. And in going to him, well, she was really going to Yahweh. She lays it out before God and lets him know. She doesn't try to tell God what he must do. But she doesn't fear to go to him either. Notice the privilege that this widow has here. This widow is nameless. We don't know her name. In many respects, she's not that important or spectacular. She's just another widow in, in Israel, among maybe hundreds more. And yet she has the privilege of going to Yahweh. She goes to God through the mediator, through Elisha at this time. And she is heard and she is accepted. Even nameless widows, even those who are at the bottom of the barrel of society, are able to come to Yahweh, to God, the God of the covenant. No matter who you are, no matter what situation you find yourself in, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have that privilege. You can approach that throne of grace and find mercy in your time of need. 
You can come before God and know that he hears you. Sometimes we have to be reminded of that. But notice also here the gracious provision in verses uh, 3 to 7. Elisha tells her, go and collect as many empty jars from your neighbors as possible and fill them up with oil. Then once uh, she has them all filled, she can sell the oil, pay off her debts and live on the rest. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Here was a widow. She was at the end of her tether. Only a small jug of oil. And, and Elisha is telling her, go get a whole load more of these empty jars and then fill them up with oil. How is that possible? How silly it would have been knocking on your neighbor's door saying, uh, do you have any empty jugs there for oil? Yeah, of course. Uh, what do you want it for? Uh, how would you answer? Yet we find that God provides for her. He provides for her and for her sons. See, there were only two options. Trust God, what he was saying through Elisha, or wait for the creditors to come banging on the door. Now, there's a little, there's a little deja vu here. Because if you remember back in, uh, to 1 Kings 17, when we were looking at Elijah, he was involved in something which was incredibly similar to this. He goes to the widow at Zarephath for food. God sends him there, but he finds that this widow has nothing either. And yet God provides not only for Elijah, but for the widow as well. He multiplied out the oil and the flour for her. You see, God is in the business of looking after the widow and the fatherless. He has compassion on the weak and the oppressed. He cares for his people. And he provides for them. Not just materially, what they need, but more importantly, what they need spiritually. You see, like all miracles in the Bible, they have, all miracles have a redemptive focus. This woman and her sons were in danger of slavery and even death. What they needed was someone to pay off their debts, to provide for them. In short, they needed a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. In ancient Israel at that time, someone could literally become a redeemer. He could think of the, in terms of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz married Ruth and became their redeemer for her and Naomi. So God here becomes this woman's redeemer. He multiplied the oil and allowed the woman not only to pay her debts, but to have enough to live on. And each one of us has a debt as well. We have a mortgage on our souls, as Raymond Dillard calls it. God has paid the price. He has paid that mortgage through Jesus Christ. He has provided for us with his boundless grace, which overflows to us through the gospel. Every one of us is in the same situation as this widow. We need to be freed from the debt of sin and judgment. And in the gospel, God has provided everything everything that we need. He has multiplied to us exactly what was required and allowed us to live. God provided for us what we need. And that's totally different from what we might want, mind you. Materialistic Westerners we're, are always very good with wants. But God's provision is what we need. And this provision... Uh, we see here, doesn't only come to this poor widow who's at the bottom of the pile, but into the next story, 
with the Shunammite woman, we find that the great contrast again between the widow and, and the great woman, the, the woman of great standing, but he provides for this woman as well. This woman was well off materially. She had enough for herself, her family, even enough to keep Elisha and his servant Gehazi. In fact, this woman even put, opts to put an extension on her house um, for, so that any time the prophet came around, he had his own place to stay in. And Elisha offers to speak to the king or the commander of the army for her as payment for what she has done, obviously offering her a favor of some description. But she needs nothing. She's quite content. This is what she says. I have a home amongst my own people, she says. There's nothing materially that she requires. No favors can be given to her for anything else that she might need. So Elisha seeks something that can reward her for the efforts in looking after him. So Gehazi tells him she has no son and her husband is old. Or in other words, there's no possibility of her, of her ever having a son. It's maybe hard for us to understand the pressure that existed in ancient societies for a male heir to a family. The inheritance always would pass uh, on through the male line. And so to not have an heir would mean the death of the family name. It was a big deal in ancient societies. Now we don't know if this woman had daughters or not, but the overall impression of the text that is given is that she doesn't have children and there's no hope of her ever having any. The woman herself doesn't ask for a son uh, when Elisha asks her what he, can be, what he can do for her. And in her response to him, we see something of the pain that she must have felt once Elijah tells her that she's going to have a son by this time next year, she's afraid. She fears being misled. She fears that it may not happen, that there may be this great disappointment, that it may all come to nothing. Yet in the next verse, we find that the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son just as Elisha had told her. It's one of those verses in the Bible that's so, just so matter-of-fact. Just as Elijah had said, so it happened. It's total understatement, really, isn't it? It was a big deal. But it's just like Yahweh. It's just what you would expect from him. He loves to give good gifts to his people. Of course, the Bible is full of similar stories. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. God gave them Isaac. Hannah, who could forget her as she pleaded in the temple for a son. And along came Samuel. Elizabeth and Zechariah. God intervened and along came John the Baptist. But notice, if you will, all, these, all those miraculous births were important ones. They contributed to the continuation of the covenant people in some description. They were all important people in terms of leadership or prophets or something like that. But this woman's child we know nothing about. Wasn't a great leader. Wasn't a great prophet. Just an ordinary man. Most likely farmed the family estate, died at some point in the future. There's nothing special about this woman that she should be granted this, you see. 
It's just sheer grace. It's just the goodness of God being displayed. Ralph Davis says this, Frequently God gives his gifts to his servants simply to make them happy with his gifts. Don't let any sarpus version of Christianity rob you of this point. Only the gospel, according to the serpent, makes God out to be stingy and manipulative. I love that phrase. Only the gospel, according to the serpent, makes God out to be stingy and manipulative. Remember Genesis chapter 3? God is good. And he loves to give his people good things. That's just the way he is. He is provided for every good and perfect gift, as James calls it. But a few years down the line, we find this woman's joy has been turned to sorrow. We find a very brief biography of the child's life. He lived, he went out to the field, he got a headache, and he died. That sums up his life. He's out in the field, complains of a headache, and he's brought to his mother where he dies on her lap. Now this nameless woman has also experienced hardship, just like the widow in the previous story, only, only this time it's far worse again, for she feels the full pain of death. She feels the separation from the child that God so graciously gave her. It's what do you make of this. Why has God, the same God who so graciously gave her a son, now taken him away? Is God some capricious tyrant who enjoys to be mean to his people? Is this a different God than the one in the previous chapter? How do we explain such things? That's what this text seems to be driving at us, isn't it? Along with many, many other people in the history of God's people, we are left wondering, why does God do such things? The Bible doesn't try and make us forget about such questions at all. It's very upfront about these issues, as we can see in this passage. And there is a great deal of mystery in the providential workings of God. Sometimes we just don't have answers. And like this poor woman, all we can do is weep and cry out to God. You see, this woman demonstrates what true faith is really like. She doesn't try and stoically ignore the pain, but rather sets out to find the Lord's prophet and cries out to him. She leaves the boy on Elisha's bed, runs off to Carmel to find Elisha. And when she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said. Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Had all her fears come back to haunt her? You see, this woman doesn't turn away from God in her distress. Rather, she turns to him and asks why. For her going to Elisha is again her going to Yahweh. Elisha is God's anointed representative at this time. And she asks him, having promised me a son, why have you taken him away from me? You see, implicit in this promise is the idea that, well, the son came and he would obviously grow up and obviously I would see him become healthy and obviously he wouldn't be taken away from me so soon. Lord, what are you doing? 
Why, God, have you not carried out your promise? Even when she doesn't understand it, when she can't comprehend it, when she clings to Yahweh. That's, that's faith, is it not? That's what real faith does. It holds on to God and his promises, even when we exp- what we experience in life doesn't seem to match up. Raymond Dillard says this, Faith is continuing to believe in the promises and goodness of God. Faith is considering it certain that God will be true to his word. It is knowing that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Ephesians 3.20 God does not mislead or deceive us. You see, faith is not serenity. It's not something which if we can achieve a certain high enough level of it that we'll find we come into a different plane of existence where pain and sorrow sort of disappear and fall by the wayside. That's not what faith is. Faith rests on God, the God who speaks, the God who makes promises, and it holds to him even in the midst of pain and of loss. We don't always know why God allows us to experience these things. But what we do know is that even in the midst of trials and sorrows, that he is taking us through such times for our good. And that good is not necessarily defined in a materialistic way. You think of all the, the blessings of, uh, that Paul describes of the gospel in Romans, you know, peace with God, all these different things. And then he goes on to say, and boasting in our afflictions. That's a benefit. God desire, God's desire for us is to be made into his bride. He wants us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes these trials that we go through help us to realize the true reality of life. They wean us off our love for worldly things, even if these things are good in themselves, so that we can love all the more the one who gives those good things. But finally, we see here the miraculous sign. As this woman pleads at the foot of Elisha in desperation, God, God intervenes. Again, he will bring us, we, we can go back to 1 Kings 17, and we find there again that that poor widow that had helped Elijah, her son dies. And again, in that story, God restores his life through Elijah. And so we have a similar scenario here. Elisha is Elijah's successor. God is working through him, again, to help his people. Elisha quickly gets Gehazi on his way, tells him to literally gird up his loins and run off and place the staff on the boy's boy's head. But the woman's having none of it, and she keeps pleading until Elisha goes himself with her. What the significance of the staff is, I'm not sure, but it doesn't have any effect on the boy. And it takes Elisha to come, and like Elijah... In 1 Kings 17, he lays himself on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and the boy begins to grow warm. He stretches himself out again on the boy, and he sneezes seven times, and he opens his eyes again. 
Elisha stretching himself out like this is him, in a sense, identifying with this boy and his mortality and his death. And God now works through him to bring this boy to life again. It's a true miracle. It is a resurrection from the dead. God brings life from death. He turns untold sorrow back to joy once more. God demonstrates his power and authority over death itself. And remember once again, this miracle that is performed here is again points us to something far greater, something far more amazing. For if we know our Bibles very well, we'll know that there was an even greater prophet than Elisha who did something very similar, not very far from this exact spot. Luke records, for it, records it for us in chapter 7 of his gospel. Jesus enters the village of Nain, which is not far away from where the story in Two Kings actually takes place. He interrupts a funeral procession and he goes over to the crying widow whose son is lying in the coffin and he says to her, don't cry. And then he speaks to a corpse lying in a box. That says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead boy sits up and he begins to talk. And notice the very interesting thing that the people that day said. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared amongst us. They said, God has come to help his people. You see, this resurrection of the, the woman's son by Elisha is a sign. It points to what God will do through the last great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and spoke and the dead lived. He had the power over death. He came to help his people. Ultimately, he came to, test, to taste death for everyone, as Hebrews tells us, so that we might have life. In him. Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he wept bitterly at the mortality of human life, at the frailty that, of it that ends in death. And he spoke the words of life to Lazarus and he came out of his tomb. Don Carson makes a throwaway comment on that. He says, if he hadn't named Lazarus, all the tombs would have been emptied that day. You see, this story in Two Kings about this widow shows us how God came to help his people. A people that were held in the fear of death. He came so that they could have everlasting life. The hope of the great resurrection from the dead when Christ returns. Death. Death is a terrible thing. And for every parent who has lost a child, for every son who stands at the grave of his father, for every daughter who weeps for a lost mother, they need this story. They need to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. As a non-Christian, I heard these words spoken at many, many gravesides when the coffin was being lowered into the ground. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. They never really meant that much to me. 
But I can remember it very well, the first funeral I was at as a Christian. The person being buried was a Christian themselves. And I heard those words spoken at the graveside. And what a difference. What a power that they hold. What a promise that they bring to us. That God has promised everlasting life to those who die in Christ. That there will be a day of mourning, yes. But there will be a day when death will be no more. And the old order of things will be passed away. This devastated widow and this mourning woman show us the reality of faith. Reality of faith in a God who provides for his people. Not only good gifts, but redemption and life, life itself through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that Jesus' words are spirit and they are life. That they are the words of eternal life. That they speak to us, Lord, of your great salvation. That they speak to us, Father, of how you sent your Son to die in our place. To rescue us from sin and judgment. How you sent him, Lord, to provide for us. To provide for us redemption and life that we needed so badly. Help us, Lord, ever to trust in the gospel. To rest on it to renew our trust in it every day. For it is only in it that we do find that life that we need. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.